Welcome to Thriller Vault, where thriller writers tell their favorite stories. I'm here with my co-host, action-adventure author Luke Richardson, and a very special guest, action-adventure author Stephen Moore. Stephen, how are you doing? Welcome to Thriller Vault. Thanks very much, guys. Yeah, very happy to be here. I'm doing okay. Thank you very much. I'm excited to, uh, to tell this story. Excellent, excellent. Now, Stephen's novels are located in ex- exotic locales, so his story is going to transport you from your living room to, I'm sure, someplace exotic. Uh, many of these stories he has, uh, many of these stories take place in places that he's visited himself or he's actually lived and worked, which is interesting. Most people are just tourists, but Stephen is uh, someone who's actually lived in these countries. So he gets the, the in-depth details of what the locals experience. And uh, some of his highlights have been, uh, he's visited 60 plus countries. He's lived and worked five continents. Highlights have been uh, trekking in the Andes and the Himalayas, scuba diving all over the world, teaching English in Korea, and trying all the local adult beverages for sure, like like Luke likes to do. Um, Steven is the author of 30 thrilling action-adventure novels. If you'd like to try out his work, he is offering a free novel at his website, stephenmoreauthor.com. Steven, without further ado, let's uh, get into the story. Okay, as, as Phil just said, one thing I always try to do is set my novels in places in which I've either lived or spent an extended period of time. Uh, there's an old adage in fiction is write what you know, but my preferred version of that is to write where you know. Um, so back in 2017, my wife and I were living in a small village near Ubud in, in Bali, Indonesia. And we spent a lot of time in Ubud and in the nearby nearby village of New Kuning, a peaceful slice of tranquility in the centre of the island of the gods. It's such a calm place with lots of shrines and beautiful iconic Balinese architecture in the temples and the local houses. It was there in that village that we met some amazing locals and hung out often with them, becoming good friends over several months. During one such temple visit where I just uh, sat taking in the tranquility and the zen-like vibes synonymous with Bali, the peace was suddenly shattered when a motorbike right outside the temple doors backfired and then backfired again. It truly did sound like how I'd always imagined a gunshot to sound. And for a few seconds, I'm sure I wasn't the only one whose heart rate must have ratcheted up several notches. But it got me thinking as I sat there and an idea began to take shape. And that's how the Tiger Temple was born. Incense hung thick in the air, its bluish gray haze adding to the somewhat mystical atmosphere. In the temple's inner sanctum, the organic frangy-pangy scent, synonymous with the religious ceremonies in the village of New Kuning, permeated every corner. From somewhere out of sight, the haunting melodic chimes of the rindic musicians added a second layer of mystique. And coupled with the unique architecture and shrine after shrine laden with flowers and offerings, Hiram Kane was again reminded why Bali was indeed considered the island of the gods. Standing beside Kane were Katut and Putu, two brothers who had become his close friends since he'd arrived in the village almost three months prior. They'd met on the beach at Seminyak. As he often did, Kane had joined in one of the daily pickup games of beach soccer, which the locals played in the late afternoons before sunset and after the hottest part of the day had passed. Tourists were welcome to join in, and Kane had ended up on the same team as the brother. He'd invited them for a beer afterwards. Kitut was lean, clean-cut and good-looking, and a popular resident of the community of 800 that called New Kuning home. 
His shaggy hair gave him the appearance of a 28-year-old teenager and Kane teased him for being the long-lost fifth member of the Beatles. Pooter was the older brother at 37. He was taller and broad-shouldered and handsome in a rugged way. He had watchful eyes and Kane thought he had an air of menace about him, though he had yet to experience that himself. The shaved head and huge tattooed biceps only enhanced the mean look. And yet, despite his tough appearance, Pooter was likeable, quick with a smile, and Kane had learned the type of man who would do anything for anyone. The physical difference between the siblings was stark, as was their dress sense. Ketut's flip-flops and shorts were no match for Putu's heavy biker boots and jeans. Kane watched as, without a word, Putu leaned into Ketut and slung an arm around his shoulder, as Kane imagined he'd been doing since they were kids. This time it wasn't a big brother's protective arm, it was a gesture of genuine affection. And their mutual respect for each other was clear and inspiring to Kane, who, since he'd come to know them better over the last few months, had learned to trust the brothers as if they were his own kin. They would often treat some of the younger kids to food or a drink at the beach after the games, and though not at all wealthy themselves, they knew others were struggling even more than themselves. Whenever at the beach, Kane now tried to avoid being on the same football team as the Bear, however, because, quite frankly, and as he didn't mind telling them, they were both terrible soccer players. The colourful ceremony at the Pura Pesa, the Temple of Origin, located in the east of the village and nearer to the spiritually important Mount Agung volcano, Kane hadn't failed to notice had been grumbling over recent days. He'd asked Putu about it, who had laughed and told Kane to relax, that Agung was always grumbling like his wife, and the day he would worry about it himself was the day Katut bought the first round at the bar. In other words, he'd added, never. The ceremony was to honour the Balinese Hindu god Batara Desa. The annual event was a social highlight of the community, when the men got together to complain about the taxes, the cost of scooter fuel, and their aching joints, and the women got together to complain about the men. There was, of course, a lot of praying. Cain wasn't a religious man, but he'd always been fascinated by religion, a dissonance he was comfortable with. It gave him a chance to witness beautiful art and architecture, and visit peaceful, atmospheric ceremonies and temples such as this. The three men stood to the rear of the temple. The brothers focused on the words of the priest, while Cain watched with fascination as everyone present paid their respects to Batara Desa. Even the effervescent children were still and quiet, their attention where it was supposed to be, and Cain felt a deep respect for the serene and innate discipline so evident in Balinese people. Gazing through the swirling incense clouds and the throng of bodies, he caught a glimpse of a young girl who happened to turn and catch his eye. Her mischievous smile would have melted any heart, and Kane had a momentary pang of regret he decided not to have kids of his own. As always, it was gone in a flash. Kane knew that the adventurous, spontaneous lifestyle he enjoyed and the scrapes he all too often found himself in meant that choosing not to have kids was one of the few sensible decisions he'd ever made. Kane loved kids, but he would leave producing them to others. He recognised the pretty little girl in the jade green dress, Ayu, the village leader's daughter, and the niece of Putu and Katut, his friends. She turned away, but before she did, she poked her tongue out at him. He promptly returned the compliment. Before she disappeared back into the crowd, the last thing Kane saw was the stuffed toy tiger that had seemingly been permanently attached to her hand since he'd first met her around the village. Crack, crack, crack. Gunshots echoed around the temple. For a brief moment, the place fell silent as the worshippers processed the shocking sounds. 
A beat later, it was total chaos as realisation dawned and the place erupted in mayhem and panic. A chaotic chorus of screams and shouts filled the air and a crush of terrified villagers scrambled towards the exit. Kane felt himself forced back against the inner wall as his heart raced and he leapt out of the way and crouched low, scanning the room for the source of the gunshots. Soon, though, as the hordes swept by, he was unable to resist the manic surge of bodies and the flailing arms of the fear-stricken worshippers. Katut too was forced back into the same corner, and Kane locked eyes with him. Shock and fear were written on his face, his wild eyes telling their own story. The screaming and surging continued as close to 300 people stampeded to safety, the unknown gunman still elusive. What the hell's going on? Kane shouted to Katut, who remained speechless. Are you hurt? Katut shook his head, his mouth agape. Katut, are you injured? Kane pressed. No, no, I'm okay. Where? Where is Putu? Kane glanced among the hordes, finally thinning as the majority of the temple-goers had last made it outside. I can't see him, Kane yelled above the still rowdy bedlam. Let's get out of here. They joined the last stream of villagers, acutely aware that there may still be a gunman in the temple, when Kane's ears pricked up at the most pitiful wailing he'd ever heard. Where is my daughter? Where is Ayu? A woman howled in her native Balinese. Recognising that final word, Kane was instantly on high alert. He glanced at Katut, who had also heard those dreadful cries. Kane watched as Katut barreled his way through the crowds, not caring who he knocked out of the way, and they burst outside, Kane doing his best to keep up through the gap his friend had created. Kane made it out seconds after Katut, the sudden bright sunlight momentarily blinding him. A moment after that, Pusu arrived, eyes wide and breathing hard fear evident from the lines creasing his forehead. Where is Ayu, he bellowed, before inhaling deep, rapid breaths. Where is my niece? Just then, the ascending growl of powerful motorbike engines thundered above the hum of the crowd. Kane spun around, in time to see Ayu dragged onto a motorbike, held firm by the rider's grip. The rider caught Kane's gaze and scowled before slapping his visor down and gunning the engine, spewing dust as he sped away. Two other huge bikes right on his tail scattered bewildered worshippers in all directions. Without a second's hesitation, Cain grabbed the brothers. With me, now! He sprinted off to the rear of the temple towards their own motorbikes and the brothers followed. Less than 15 seconds later, the trio were tearing up the main road through the village towards the sacred monkey forest. What the hell? Cain thought. What just happened? He didn't have time to think about all that now as he pushed his motorbike to 50 miles per hour along the usually quiet, dusty street that led to the sacred monkey forest, home to hundreds of native macaques outnumbered only by an ever-growing flood of tourists. Tourists? Damn it, thought Kane. There'll be swarms of them. If the kidnappers go through the forest... Kane had to head the bastards off before that. He knew the area well and knew the kidnappers' most direct route of escape was directly through the heart of the monkey forest and right through the throngs of tourists. Kane knew of a narrow, little-known laneway that ran alongside the perimeter of the forest. If I can just catch them up and steer them that way, he thought. He hunched down in his seat and pulled back on the throttle, pushing his modest 150cc Kawasaki to its equally modest limits. To his surprise, he started to gain a little on the rear kidnapper's bike, but estimated he had no more than 30 seconds to head off the inevitable carnage. Putu's bike was more powerful, 
and as if he'd read Kane's thoughts, the big man suddenly flew past his right flank and tore after the trailing rider ahead. 20 seconds now, and neither Kane nor Katut had made up any significant ground. Go on, he shouted as Putu closed in on the kidnapper. 10 seconds. Putu swung wide, veering past the tailbike, and just at the last second edged him into the narrow lane to the right of the forest rear entrance, almost colliding with a stooped old man rounding the bend. Two's better than three, Kane thought. But Ayu was still on one of the lead bikes. It was no use, they were going through the forest. At 11 in the morning, it would already be crowded. The lead bike burst through the entry barrier, tourists and monkeys scattering in their wake with an uproar of screams and high-pitched shrieks. Kane had no choice but to follow, Katut hard on his trail. The front bike swerved right around the natural amphitheatre that was a favourite playground to the troops of the fun-loving macaques. All bar none of the 50 or more there at that moment froze on the spot, their games forgotten at first one, then two, then three and four motorbikes screamed past them, shattering the silence in the shady forest grove. Katut managed to pull his bike alongside Kane's and he shot his friend an agonised sideways glance. The message in his pleading eyes was clear. Help me. The natural geography of the forest was not conducive to high-speed motorbike chases. The narrow trails and low-hanging trees skirted around perilous ravines and deep canyons, at the bottom of which raged wild water rapids. One mistake now could mean Kane's death, yet he shoved safety aside and leaned into those perilous curves, knowing a little girl's life depended on it. They surged on. Brightly dressed tourists flashed by in a blur, the screams of terror lost beneath the combined roar of the four straining engines. Suddenly, the two kidnappers' bikes split up, the lead edging left to the west of the forest, the trailing bike steering right. Which one has Ayu? Kane couldn't tell, and on a hunch he chose left. For a brief moment, the bike he was following disappeared around a bend and he grunted a curse at losing sight of his quarry. Focusing hard on the sun-dappled path through the wild forest, Kane caught a flash of movement to his left. He spotted the kidnapper's bike on a higher ridge and angled his own across the ancient stone bridge that spanned the deep ravine, bracing hard into his seat as he hurtled around the bend too quickly. He accelerated anyway, his mind focused only on catching up with Ayu's kidnapper. Too late, he saw a pair of infant monkeys sitting in the middle of the bridge, frozen. He slammed on his brakes, skidded and fell, metal screeching horrendously on concrete, his arms and legs scraping along the unforgiving surface and shredding the flesh from his forearms. Finally, after what seemed an age but was only a few seconds, he came to a juddering halt, alive, battered and being stared at by two curious monkeys. Kane's sunglasses had flown off and landed a few inches from one of the creatures. Its head twitched from side to side, nervous of the noisy intruder. A moment later, a much larger monkey dropped from a branch above the bridge grabbed up the two infants and swung them onto its back. Then she paused and eyeballed Kane. A second later, she grabbed Kane's shiny new Ray-Bans from the ground and with two strides and a leap, she scampered up into the tree. Kane checked for broken bones and was surprised to find none. He struggled to his feet and limped over to the bike. Its engine was still running. With a shake of the head, he jumped on and sped off in the direction of the kidnapper. Putu had managed to stay close on the tail of his target. It was on such a la- narrow lane that there had been no chance to overtake. If I can just get beyond the monkey forest to the main road in the town, I can cause that guy to crash, Putu thought. Then there will be hell to pay. He narrowed his eyes and leaned into the bends, 
a tight grin curling his lips as his front tire moved within an inch of the kidnapper's rear. Kitut raged as he flew after Ayu, his teeth clenched tight and the blood pumping through his veins so hard he could feel it. He could see Ayu's hair whipping around as her kidnapper threw his bike recklessly into the turns. One skid or pothole and she could be killed. He pushed the darkness away, however, allowing another more potent thought to step forward. Why are you? Ketuk gritted his teeth and focused hard on staying with the kidnapper, careful not to get too close and cause an accident, close enough not to lose sight of them in the forest. They would soon be clear of the trees and onto the main drag, where the kidnapper's bigger bikes would surely leave them behind on the long straight road out of the wood. He could not let that happen. He would not let that happen. As if choreographed, all three kidnappers emerged from the forest simultaneously. They were soon flying the wrong way along the one-way Hanuman Street, dodging taxis and tourists and hundreds of motoscooters. Kane saw his chance in the congestion, anticipating the kidnappers would head west past Ubud Palace and out of town to make their escape on the quiet country roads. He signalled to Katut to continue straight, and though Puta was too far ahead to notice, Kane knew there would be no telling the headstrong bodybuilder what to do anyway. A hundred yards ahead was a left turn, Kane knew, Jalan Dawisata, a shortcut in the direction he'd hoped they'd take. Kane took it, screeching around the bend and twisting the throttle, tearing up that street and hoping to cut them off on the main road. He swerved and dodged around food stalls and handicraft vendors and narrowly avoided a pair of street dogs lazing in the road, emerging from the last curve and praying he'd beaten the kidnappers to the river. He hadn't. Ketuk flew past him, desperation etched onto his face. Kane had no option but to rejoin the chase. Up ahead, they veered right before crossing another bridge and angled their bikes onto the Champlain Ridgeway. With his hopes diminishing, Kane knew that if the kidnappers managed to get onto that trail unhindered, that would be that, and the race for Ayu would be over. Kane skidded around the narrow lane and burst onto the ridgeway, his tyres kicking up bursts of dust and gravel as they dug into the trail and propelled him forwards. He was gaining on Katut, who in turn was catching up with Putu, whose bike slowed, juddering to a sudden halt. Kane slowed a fraction as he approached and watched as Putu threw his motorbike down in a frustrated rage, his eyes wild as he uttered a bellowing roar out across the Rice Terrace Valley, either side of the Ridway Path. Katut didn't slow down, powering past his brother. Kane followed suit. Kane knew the Ridgeway well. The trail wasn't narrow, but they were travelling so fast that one false move could prove fatal. He also knew that the kidnappers would have to leave the trail onto another main road. One way led back into a good, the other eventually splitting off in all directions. If they lost them before that, they'd have no idea where I would end up. The kidnappers were relentless in their efforts to get away, racing along the ridgeway dangerously fast. Kane had no idea who they were, but the thought of what they might do to Ayu spurred him on. He threw himself into the chase, leaning into the curves and taking a racing line closer to the precarious ledge. An unsuspecting rice farmer stepped into the trail from behind a copse of Bougainvillea, startling the lead rider, who wobbled then swerved left, his front wheel slamming into a pothole, launching him over the handlebars. Both bike and rider somersaulted down the terraced ridge, almost as if in slow motion, and crashed into a ditch between two flooded rice paddies. The other two kidnappers surged on. Ayu still clamped in place. It was clear to Kane that thoughts of their fallen comrade were clearly secondary to the pressing need to get their prize to wherever they were heading. Shit, it did not bode well for Ayu. Kane spotted the fallen kidnapper, staggered to his feet and make off across the paddies. 
he knew he couldn't catch up to the riders, so skidded to a halt, dumped the bike and threw himself down the terraces after the man. Kane leapt over drainage ditches and surged across the flooded paddies in pursuit, then cursed as he slipped, one foot disappearing into the mud of a drowned paddy. The five-second delay had let the kidnapper edge further away. Kane was in great shape the best of his life, but the fleeing man was a machine and no matter how hard he pushed he could not make up the ground. Images of Ayu's face flashed before him, and Kane dug deep, straining every sinew to catch the criminal. At last he gained a little ground, the distance between them narrowing from 40 yards to 30, then 20. But just as he was about to close to within 10 feet, the man turned, pulled out a pistol and fired three shots. Kane dove for cover into a drainage ditch, crashing into the solid, baked earth bank with a painful thud. After a moment, and when he realised he was unhurt and the shooting had stopped, he lifted his head. He'd almost expected to see the gunman staring at him, ready for the kill shot, but he didn't. Instead, he found himself face to face with a giant king cobra, poised to strike. Kane froze, his eyes darting left and right, searching for a way out. The clock was ticking. Kane was well aware that just one bite from the lethal cobra might be fatal. He also knew that the kidnapper had just taken three shots and missed with all three. Kane made his move and rolled out of reach just as the massive cobra struck. Its powerful neck a lightning blow as Kane dodged its huge fanged mouth and dove out of the ditch. He flipped over onto his front and crouched, alert, ready for the gunfire. None came and he exhaled, elated at the near miss. The relief was short-lived. There was no sign of the kidnapper. The bastard had gotten away. Putu peered ahead beyond the two riders. With growing alarm, he spotted a large 4x4 parked in the centre of the trail. A few seconds later, the kidnappers skidded to an abrupt stop at the powerful-looking truck, dumping their boater bikes where they fell. The engine still running. After launching a screaming Ayu into the arms of a waiting henchman standing on the truck's flatbed, the two riders climbed in. As the truck pulled away in a cloud of dust and flying stones and rubble, the men each pulled out a handgun and began firing at Putu. Putu dove for cover behind a stand of swaying bamboo. With his head in his powerful hands, his bullets singed and crashed with the bamboo. He roared in an outburst of pure and unfiltered rage. When the firing stopped, he looked up at the cloud of dust and struggled to hold back tears when the realisation of what it truly meant sank in. The kidnappers were gone. So too was Ayu. Katuk eased his motorbike to a stop as Putu emerged from behind the bamboo. Moments later, Kane trotted up and approached them. The three men stood forlorn on the trail, the cloud of swirling dust finally settling to the ground. The only sign that the truck and the kidnappers had ever been there at all was the discarded bikes and the dusty, shredded tiger toy lying face down in the dirt beside them. Ayu's toy. Putu walked over to the stuffed toy and picked it up. Then he turned to his brother and friend. He looked at them as they stood there, their expressions a mix of rage and frustration and shame. He knew they felt as helpless in that moment as he did. His beloved ten-year-old niece was gone, and he had failed to save her. That was good. Really nice. Thank really you. Nice. That was very good. I like the effect of the siren in the background <laughs> as well. You've, you've obviously worked hard to put that in to make I, that. <laughs> yes, yes. You've got Leslie Just, in the other phone doing a prank. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't even noticed that myself. No. Oh, fantastic. I love how that all just sort of spiralled out of your that one sound in that place and the sort of shocking nature of that sound and those characters and the chase and yeah, I really like, 
I liked how that sort of came together. That that literally is how that idea started. It was just I was in that temple and it was so peaceful, and that motorbike kind of backfired a couple of times and it just made me jump and everybody else jumped. And it, I mean, I've never heard a gunshot that I know of, but that's what I imagined it would sound like. And um, it just, wow, that was, and people panicked for a few seconds until we realized it was nothing, but it did. It just, it was the seed of an idea that just developed. Um, And like I said, I was living in Bali at that time. And half of those characters are real people that I knew and made friends with when I was there in that village. And yeah, just from a small idea, but, uh, you know, kind of an epic story evolved. So I, I really like the, the, the Bali locale, like the stuff that you put in there. I love the monkey stealing his Ray-Bans, yeah. which is hilarious. I know that happens, <laughs> by oh, the way. It, they take stuff. totally happens. <laughs> which is yeah. so funny. The uh, monkey the, forest uh, is such a cool place. And, you know, it's kind of touristy, but it is a really sacred place. Right. Um, and they do warn you before you go in, don't have any loose objects, hats, cameras. <laughs> they just, they just take anything, especially food, obviously. But so I just, you know, I imagined that was what would happen to Kane because he's a bit like me. He's <laughs> always losing stuff. And yeah. So the, yeah, the, also the, the, the little things that you put in, like the swaying bamboo. I mean, that's something that I actually have bamboo at my house, but, um, but that's more of a, you know, it's something I would, I would picture in Bali, like absolutely. So I, I like yeah. how you put those little bits, bits yeah. in that sort of ground you in the in the setting. But yeah, uh, very I, exciting, great story. Thank you, Stephen. Thank, Appreciate thank you it. very much. Yeah, I I love those details, and it, I'd like to get more into the story, but sometimes you can overdo it as well and take away from the actual thing that's happening. But yeah, I think um, you did a good mix of that. I, I I get it. Like you don't want to slow it down too much, especially with the thriller. But uh, yeah, that was that was great. Oh, thank you. I like the mention of the instruments. Yeah, it's a fun, the, it's a fun story. The musicians as well at the start. Yeah. Is it gamelan? Yeah, I don't know if you know the rindic. I, I don't know that uh-huh. word, but the the rindic is is I think that's the name of the music and actually the instruments. It's, they're kind of like xylophones. You kind of hit them and ding dong like ping pingy sounds, and it's very Balinese. Um, other cultures have it too. It's discordant, isn't it? It's quite jarring, actually. Yeah, is it? Well, if you don't mm. know it, it can. Well, I, I wouldn't say jarring. It's kind of very peaceful, but it it doesn't seem to be any melody to it. But there must yeah, be. But yeah. I, I'm not a music person, so I I couldn't pick it. But it is very to me. It's very peaceful. And that was part of the Tiger Temple that you've got there. That's actually chapter one. There are some prologues introducing some other characters, but uh, that's that's chapter one. That's um, that just launches straight into some action, obviously. So. Feel, feel like it was a good way to start the main event yeah i like it i like the idea because i did that with one of the recent episodes on here was um take a part of one of my stories and sort of repurpose it as the as a short story and it worked quite well i think and i think yours has done so too the question is did they did they find her i know <laughs> did they <laughs> well, find the girl so i do know <laughs> but i'm not gonna <laughs> say any spoilers <laughs> yeah interesting as well that, that was at the time um, I don't know if you can see the cover, but um, between the temple architecture, there's the volcano, Mount Agung, which sort of features in the story as a main character. And while I was there, that was when the the bigger eruption was about to take place. And it had been in the news for weeks and weeks and weeks. So that's all. This is kind of set exactly during that time. So the the volcano, Mount Agung, actually plays a very big part in the whole in the whole story as as a kind of a character of its own. No, man, you read it really well as well. 
Stephen, thank you so much for the thrilling story today. Appreciate it. Is there anything you wanted to add before we sign off? Uh, well, thank you for inviting me on. It's been been fun. Um, guys, if you enjoyed that uh, chapter one of the Tiger Temple, this this book here, um, you can find it on, on Amazon. It's in Kindle Unlimited. So go and go and find it and en- enjoy the rest of the story. And this is book one of my my most well-known series featuring Hiram Kane. And there are now 10 books in that series. So there's, there's plenty of other action stories in other cool, exciting locations around the world for you to get stuck into. So I hope you like it. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much for listening to Thriller Vault. Be sure to like, subscribe and share, and we'll see you next week. 